Today's guest is an author of science fiction and fantasy. As a winner of the Writers of the Future contest, he's had work published in Analog, Galaxy's Edge magazine, Escape Pod, and more. His fantasy series, The Saga of the Redeemed, includes book one, The Oldest Trick, with book two, No Good Deed, available now on Amazon. A gaming geek, a Bostonian, and a professor of English, the Grim Tidings podcast proudly welcomes Austin Habershaw to the show. Austin, thanks, and thanks for hanging out, thanks man. Thanks for having me. What's the weather like in Boston today? Uh, it's pretty lovely, actually. It's um, probably 70 degrees-ish and sunny, and it'll rain later, but otherwise it's fine. Is it humid No. No. I mean, it, no. it gets humid in the summer, um, but uh, right now we're not fully in the summer yet, so um, okay. this is the tail end of spring. Awesome, awesome. Well, you are an author of science fiction and fantasy, and you're kind of a big shot because you won the Writers of the Future contest, which is a pretty pretty prestigious contest as far as I'm concerned. It, it's it, You can't be a amateur to to place within that that competition some pretty pretty stiff competition there um tell us about how you picked up a win uh, there. so yeah it's um it's this international um science fiction fantasy writing contest uh it's interesting you say you have to be uh, a pro to get in it's only for amateurs you can only enter it as an amateur and so up to a certain point so there's like a arbitrary line they draw between what counts as a professional what counts as an amateur i had gotten a couple semi-pro story sales before i had I won. Now, winning, basically, I entered it, I started entering it, um, I probably entered it about 12 times. Um, you can enter, or maybe, no, it was about 10. Uh, and you can enter it up to four times a year. I did it about once a year for a couple years there, and then towards the end, I did it every quarter. Mostly as a way to just get me to write things. It was a, it was a nice deadline to have for short work I was working on, and it was sort of like a thing that I could do. And then I felt good about myself after I get it out there. And then what happens is you can get like honorable mentions or semifinal finalist fi finishes. If you get a semifinalist finish, you get somebody like um, Dave Farland who will write you a critique of your story and tell you what went well or what didn't. And so I got two critiques, one from Farland. I won two semifinalists. I got a critique from Farland and I got a critique from Katie Wentworth. And uh, that was both, that was really cool and very encouraging as someone who was trying to uh, become a writer because I got, the sense that real pros looking at my, had looked at my stuff. The list of judges is amazing. Um, and they looked at my stuff and they said, this is actually good. It's just not quite good enough. Keep going. And it was very encouraging. So um, I finally, I got a finalist finish and I didn't win, which was rough. Because, uh, you know, you come that close and then they're, they give you a phone call like, well, sorry. You go, oh. And then... I, it was probably my last quarter of eligibility or last two quarters of eligibility because I had gotten the book deal for the oldest trick um, is split into its two halves uh, like the week before I won. <laughs> like the week before I won, I got, I got the book deal and then they, I got the phone call and they were like, you won? And I was like, no way. Um, it was really, really exciting. And they fly out to LA and you spend a week in this workshop with guys like Tim Powers and, uh, Dave Farland and Orson Scott Card and um, Kevin J. Anderson and uh, Eric Flint and yeah, wow. no, it's unbelievable. Like you, they 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 bring out all the all the big names. Oh, uh, Robert Sawyer, Robert J. Sawyer, Doug Beeson, and oh, Mike Resnick. It's really cool, and uh, it's like this boot camp kind of thing. You're with like the twelve other winners for so they take you get first, second, third, all four quarters, so twelve people hat out and then they have this giant red carpet gala thing you give a speech you get a 
trophy. They do a big signing. Uh, and it's awesome. It's really awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was sort of like the informal kickoff of my professional career. Um, or I guess formal, I guess formal kickoff. And I was, yeah, good way to start, man. So, I mean, (laughs) as formal (laughs) as it gets. Uh, and it, it's, uh, I would, anybody, if anybody's listening and wants, I mean, I, I assume people are listening, but I mean, um, anybody who is looking to get into this business and wants to have something to help them get there. This is a really great contest, even if you don't win. And one of the things that Robert J. Sawyer said, like when he was starting out, he entered the contest like a ton of times. He never won. But the amount of work he put into to enter the contest was uh, really upped his game to the point where he could get published professionally. And uh, once you get published professionally, you can't enter the contest anymore. But hey, you're now a professional author. So what are you complaining? So um, it it's a great. Uh, it's a great contest. It's very, uh, very worthwhile. I'm very glad it's out there. And the story that you won for was called uh, A Revolutionary's Guide to Practical Conjuration. It's available in the Writers of the Future, Volume 31. People can pick that up on your Amazon page if they want to check that out. Uh, but you were pa- you were paired up with artist Xing uh, Zhuan Lu, who actually uh, did a commissioned art piece for that yeah, story. Yeah, he did. That must have been pretty it amazing. Was. So they have art. They have an art contest as well. So like the artist winners illustrate your story the writer's stories so um they do this really cool thing where you don't know who your artist is and you have no idea what the artwork's going to look like they don't talk to you or anything you they get your story and they read it and they do the illustration before they come to the contest and then what happens is they have one day they bring all the authors in and they reveal all 12 works of art and you have to go find the artwork for your story without knowing which one's which, which is really cool because you're walking walking along and looking at each picture and you're like, no, that's not it. No, that's not it. And I'm going down the row and I come to his artwork, which is crazy cool. And I like freeze. I'm like, oh my God, that's totally lean. Like this, that is the Dreaming City. Holy, it was like really cool. I was like right there. And uh, it's this great, it's this really cool moment. Um, I, I had... I'd had artwork associated with my stories before, like so the cover art, for instance, for my uh, for the for the Iron Ring, what I had seen before. But this one was really based off the story. The cover art for my novels is really uh, a little less involved than that, I guess is the way to put it. It's it's sort of more in the in the theme of like put a put a striking element at the center of the cover that sort of implies something interesting, um, whereas. Jimmy Liu's um, work was was lifted directly from a moment from the story, and I could tell immediately what moment it was, and it was really really cool um, for something you have in your head for that long. You know, to actually see it and see someone else basically pulled it out of your head is really cool. Any of the stories you've submitted to the writers of the future before have they spun off into uh, published stories later on, or from the critiques you got? So let's see, of the stories I sent out there, I think I've published a couple of them, actually. So, um, the yeah, so I had I had one or two in stupefying stories that were um, semi-finalist or honorable mention stories from that contest. Uh, my first finalist I actually haven't found a home for yet. It's just kind of at a really bad length. It's about 8,000 words, and that puts it about 1,000 words over most markets. 
uh, and I can't really cut it down to my satisfaction. So that one's kind of floating in limbo. A lot of my short fiction writing is practice, or uh, not practice, is world building for my novel ideas. So I'll write, one of the ways I explore a world that I'm trying to develop is I write short stories set in different corners or different within certain subcultures of the world I'm trying to create that gives it a degree of texture and, and kind of fleshes out a lot of ideas that I'm toying with. So in a sense, a lot of these stories have um, filtered into other stuff I'm doing. Uh, the, the, the story that won, uh, uh, A Revolutionary's Guide to Practical Conjuration, that's actually set in the same world as The Oldest Trick and uh, No Good Deed. It's set about 10 to 15 years prior to the... Um, to the action of the of the oldest trick and it's in a different country across a sea but it's it's set in the same world and it has the the events that happen or that are prominent in that story are referenced by the main character in the um in the oldest tricks so they're they're all related it's all kind of part of the same tapestry if you will so do you see that as the better world building uh, technique rather than a lot of people uh, I've encountered across forums. They, they spend shitloads of time world building stuff, just sitting in world building before they even write a story. And then they never get around to actually writing the story. Yeah. I think, I think that there is a, there is a stage where you got to just sit down and, and draw a map and write up random stuff. I have, I have stupid amounts. That's, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty amazing. I have hundreds of pages of world building crap. But the thing is, I get bored doing that after a certain period of time. Like, you know, it just feels so static. It's like I'm writing a history book. And while that's fun for a little while, after a while, I'm like, well, if I'm going to write a story here, I really need to see the place breathe. You know, I need to meet the people. I need to get a sense of the texture of the place. And I don't think you can do that with just static world building kind of stuff i think you need to um at some point start actually writing now you can start writing the novel i suppose but before the world building's done i don't think that's a great idea because a lot of times you end up having to retcon and and change stuff as you discover things as you go i mean and that's going to happen anyway but the more world building you have done before you start the novel itself the more confident you will be inhabiting that space and i think being confident in what your world is like is really important. But so the two things I would write short stories, um, and some many of them have not been published because a lot of them are terrible. Uh, but they're sort of fun ways to kind of make the world breathe. And then the other thing I do, um, which if possible is even more geeky, I will design a role playing game uh, based in the world that I've created. And I'll get a bunch of my friends together. We'll play a little campaign and stuff, and that I'll that will also breathe an awful lot of life into the world that gives it even more texture because uh, friends of mine will ask me questions like, so in this country, do they have public bathrooms? And I'll go like, that's a really <laughs> good question I never considered. And then all of a sudden I have to think like, well, would they, and how does that work? And is that significant? And, and so um, I find that really handy too. So all this world building uh, construction has come to fruition in your first novel, which is called, the oldest trick uh, for folks who have not picked up that book, maybe clue us into what the book is about and kind of hook us with that story. Why, why should readers pay attention to this fantasy novel and uh, pick it up? Uh, so, okay. The oldest trick is a story of a 
bad guy, basically, a, a criminal mastermind named Tivian Reldemar, who um, right after he is betrayed by his partner and left for dead in a freezing river, as is, you know, customary, his rescuer puts this ring on his finger that won't let him do bad things anymore. So Tivian has to figure out how to get revenge without doing bad things. Um, and he's very upset about it. Um, he really does not enjoy the experience. And one of the things I wanted to do with this story is I, I always find redemption stories interesting, but I always find that redemption comes really quickly or very easily. And Tivian is, is a, is a prick. He's a, <laughs> just a bastard. He's a, he's a nasty person. Uh, he's selfish. He's narcissistic. He's vain. He's can be very cruel. One of the, one of the ways I envision, I think of the novel, like if I was going to give it a, a simple compare. It's sort of like you take James Bond, right? James Bond is, by all accounts, a prick, but he's cool. You like him anyway, even though he's a nasty person. You take James Bond, you put him in a high magic setting, and that's kind of what the book is like. Tivian is a very Bond-like character. He has a lot of gadgets. He has He's very suave and debonair at the same time as he's a jerk to people. You kind of are with him because he's he's cool and he's also being mean to people you also don't like. And at the same time, you're sort of fascinated by, the, well, well, is he a good person? Because it's the insistence of his rescuer, the guy who puts the ring on him, that actually, deep down, Tivian Raldemar, you are a decent human being and you're wasting your life. And Tivian's like, kiss my ass. And, <laughs> and, and he goes on, I don't know, actually, is that allowed? I don't know. Um, and he and he goes on, and the the arc arc of much of the first book is him just trying to get the damn ring off, and um, along the way, because of his handicap, as he would put it, he ends up picking up uh, this orphan kid who helps him out. He meets a, um, a man eating mother Noel who's out for revenge, like he is, and he ends up hanging around with her. And next thing you know, he winds up with like friends, which is something that he doesn't value or think he needs and um it's a it's a story of him getting drawn into this also global conspiracy as he's trying to do all this and basically he gets he gets eyeball deep in crap uh he gets in a lot of trouble and um he has to figure out how to get his way out i'm, assu I'm assuming no he tries to just cut the ring off at some point right well so he he can't do that without cutting off his finger um, and he doesn't want to do that because he rather is rather fond of his fingers. Um, <laughs> and as a very vain human being, he'll be damned if he's going to deform his hand uh, because some doofus thought it would be funny to put like ring that won't let him stab people in the back anymore. Um, so he, 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 he tries to find other ways to do it. Like that's sort of like, he's not quite willing to cut off his own finger. Um, it can't come his, his, um, the guy who puts it on him also has one of those rings and he shows Tivian his hand and his finger is just a mass of scar tissue. And Tivian looks at that and is like, okay then. So this thing drives you crazy. All right. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, he, he, um, he has too high opinion of himself to mutilate himself. Basically his I'm hands late. would be a loss mm -hmm. to society. I mean, he can't. <laughs> So No Good Deed is the follow-up novel, book two of the Saga of the Redeemed. It's coming out June 21st. What can we expect from Tivian in this uh, latest edition? So uh, for those of uh, those people who have read the first book, um, Tivian sort of ends um, 
having he he accepts the fact that now he has companions and that his life of criminal dealings is somewhat curtailed and um he's essentially living in his own version of hell which is that he is no longer able to do the high-end magical smuggling he used to do like he basically dealt in magical contraband you want to love potion you talk to tivian raldemar um now he can't do that anymore because it involves too much skullduggery if you will and he is reduced to basically tomb diving like finding old relics and like fencing um stuff he pulls out of archaeological digs and and he's forced to wheedle uh favors from provincial nobility he's done favors for in the past and basically he's a shadow of his former self as far as he's concerned um he spends much of his time filthy. He hasn't had a decent bottle of wine in years, um, or in like a year. And what he finds out is that um, his old nemesis, who he deals with in the first book, Mirian Alifar, has been um, convicted of a crime, which he finds wildly implausible. She was a defender of the balance and is a um, basically like a magical cop. And she gets, uh, their punishment is um, petrification. So she gets caught smuggling, supposedly, and they petrify her. Uh, And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. But he finds out about it in such a way that implies that someone's trying to get his attention. And um, he figures out that that someone uh, is um, the most powerful sorcerer in, in the world, who also happens to be his mother. Um, and his mother is basically trying to manipulate him into doing something. And this draws him back into the world of um, high intrigue, if you will. Uh, and he has to go back to Saldor, which is the home base of the Defenders of the Balance, the most dangerous place he can possibly go, but he goes anyway, and um, to try and figure out what's going on and, and extricate himself from his mother's plots, which have plagued him his whole life. Um, Part of the reason Tivian is such a jerk at the beginning of the first book is because um, he is in a protracted state of rebellion against his mother's manipulations. Um, and he has to go back into that world and deal with it again. So you mentioned on your your blog about the Frankenstein stage of writing <laughs> a novel. Uh, yeah. did, the, did the latest book uh, suffer from any Frankenstein... Uh, syndrome where you know the book became alive and started killing villagers or anything (laughs) so um yeah i think well not every book i one of the things i say in that blog post is not every book hits the frankenstein stage and what i what i call the frankenstein stage is you've written like a rough draft you have sort of a rough you start a rough draft but it's terrible and you hate it so you write an additional series of scenes to try and fix it but those are also terrible and you also hate those and you end up with this like massive of scenes and events and like three different ways to tell the same part of the story and none of it's really working. Um, but you know, in that pile of stuff, like you've written the book at this point, you know, three times and that pile of stuff, you know, you have the right combination of stuff to make it work. It's just a question now of taking chunks of book and stitching them together. Frankenstein, like until you get something that lives in, uh, in no good deed, Um, I didn't hit that stage too badly, but what ended up happening with that is um, it ended up being way too long. Um, I had a I had a hundred thousand word limit to how long it could be, according to my contract. And it was one hundred and twenty four thousand words. 
So I was like, okay, I kind of like how it is, but I need to now cut about 25,000 words out of this somehow. And that was sort of the inverse of the Frankenstein stage in which I had to saw off <laughs> Basically, I had to delete whole subplots, remove whole characters to try and make that cut, which was, you know, a good fifth of the novel had to go. Uh, and then I needed enough um, elbow room to stitch the pieces back together so that they still made sense. Um, the book I'm writing now, I'm, I'm writing the, um, the third book in the Saga of the Redeems. It's not under contract yet, so I don't know whether or not it's going to actually show up. I hope it does, but we'll see. Uh, that I'm in the middle of, and I've, I've done a, many drafts of that, and I'm in that stage where I have all this extra stuff, and I need to find the right pieces to fit together to make it live and make it work. Um, and I'm slowly doing that. It's, it's, um, it's work. I mean, it takes a while. Um, you need to have a real good grasp of good memory of everything you've done, or you have to be an exhaustive note taker. Um, I'm, I tend to not be an exhaustive note taker, so I have to sort of just remember what I'm doing. Yeah, it's going, it's going pretty well, I think. Uh, but it's hard to tell until that lightning bolt hits it and it, it, it rises from the table, you know? What are your plans for the series? How many books do you see the saga? It would be four. The idea is, um, if I, if I get another contract from Harper, it'll be another two books. Um, I'll wrap it up in the fourth. It won't like end, end, end. Like I won't, not every single thing will be tied up, but enough that I can walk away from the series and who knows if it like becomes a big deal, I could come back. But each of the books is sort of an independent story arc that has elements that tie it together, but each of the books do not pick up exactly where the last one left, left off. Uh, I, I, there's a bit of space between each one. It's not so much that I, I would say like you could read the second one without reading the first. You could. I mean, it would make sense. You'd miss a lot of things that were going on, but it, it would still make sense. It would be a satisfying story. Uh, you just would lose some of the grander context, I suppose. But yeah, I, I try and keep, keep each one to be an independent arc. Kind of again, I kind of think of them in terms of like Bond movies almost. I have, I have a Bond mm -hmm. villain kind of guy in each one. There is usually some sort of evil, attractive woman. There is usually some sort of, he has a series of like gadgets that he has to employ. There's, you know, it ends in some sort of giant explosion. That That's sort of loosely what's going on, uh, except all in a high fantasy setting. And, and, um, uh, and Tivian uh, is a character undergoing change, unlike Bond, who pretty much is the same exact guy. Every time you meet him, um, Tivian is someone undergoing a, a, a grand and gradual personal catharsis. You, you run on your, your blog some descriptions for races. I'm curious uh, what this is about because it's tagged oh. the Union of Stars. Yeah, okay, yeah. So uh, one of the other things I do with world building is sometimes when I don't have anything to put on my blog, I just write up some stuff to build in a world I'm setting up. So the Union of Stars is an idea I have. It'll probably be the next series of novels I work on that's sort of a space opera-esque setting that takes place in a um, interstellar union or confederacy kind of thing. Um, there are no humans in it, though. It is, it is a place that the humans do not exist, as far as anyone knows. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a society that that is run off a series of um, supposedly fair and equitable laws, uh, but that 
in practice functions to uh, disenfranchise and and um, kind of destroy various segments of the of the various species that do not rate as being quote unquote great races. The great races are those that actually discovered faster than light travel all on their own, and the other ones are the ones that were colonized or just discovered by uh, said great races. And they have this. I don't know, it could go on and on, but basically they have like a system, they measure their world in cycles, um, and each cycle is split up into a period of war for, I think I have it set up as like four years, and then a period of rebuilding for four years, a period of peace for four years, a period of preparation for four years, and then another four years of war. So interstellar war happens every 16 years. Um, and it's strictly monitored by giant world-eating, spaceship-eating, void-dwelling creatures called marshals, and um, so on. So the, the species that appear on there are related to that world as I try and flesh it out. It's not entirely set in stone, but it's um, I'm working on it. Yeah, and folks can check out your blog for that for that post, amongst other posts. I appreciate your regular regular bloggery that you have going on, and your uh, website is a a Habershaw. Yep. Dot com for if folks want to follow you there um, as well. So cool stuff. You actually landed your book deal with Harper Voyager Impulse. We love Harper Voyager. We had uh, Rebecca Lukash oh, on the show yeah, from yeah. Harper. We're going to get uh, other folks on the show as well. But you, Mr. Big Shot, uh, you got your own <laughs> book deal without an agent, uh, which we'll talk about. But uh, tell us about how you landed your deal with Harper Voyager. Uh, so they had an open call where they, uh, and they did this again this year, I think, uh, where they uh, will just, they're looking for, you know, whatever. Um, I think at, at the time when I went in, just like anything fantasy or science fiction, it was wide open. And so I sent uh, The Oldest Trick because um, I'd finished it and I'd been shopping it around to agents for a while, but I hadn't got really any nibbles. And um, and this thing opened, I was like, well, what the hell? I, I sent it in. And... Um, they sat on it forever. Like it was there for ages. I, after about six months, I queried them and I said, Hey, you still got that? And I got this form. I got this form email that said, yes, your novel is still under consideration. Thank you for your patience. I was like, oh, okay. And then after a year, I didn't hear anything. So it's been 12 months. And so I queried again. I'm like, ah, oh, so did I just miss the email or what? Are <laughs> <laughs> you still doing this? And I got the form email, the exact same one. I was like, oh, it's just a, I'm talking to a robot, me and me and a robot. But then literally 15 minutes after I got that robo email, I got a personalized email from uh, Kelly O'Connor at the time was an assistant editor there. And she was like, we have extreme interest in the oldest trick. Please let us know if interest develops from elsewhere. And I was like, well, that's a really good sign. But of course, there's sort of a cruel irony in her saying, like, let us know if, if interest develops elsewhere, because it. It's an awful lot like, you know, you are starving, you're, you're dying in the middle of a desert, and someone says, I got this pitcher of lemonade, which I might <laughs> give you, but let me know if you find another lemonade stand. And it's like, um, okay. <laughs> so I played it cool. I was like, oh, yes, of course, I will, I will let you know. <laughs> in case someone's kicking in my door any day now. Uh, so, so then I waited another couple months, and at this point, it was... Um, December of, I think, uh, uh, 2013 at that point, I think. And I queried again. I was like, look, are you doing it? What, what's happening? And they're like, you'll hear by, by the end of January, guaranteed. I hadn't been nervous up until that point. And then for the month of January, I checked my email at least 437 times a day. 
<laughs> like I basically lived with my email browser open everywhere I went. And um, it got to the end of January and I heard nothing. So I sent one more query. I was like, so what happened? And I heard nothing back. And I'm like, okay. I had to imagine, because they had gotten something like 4,000 novels. <laughs> I imagine they were down. I had been watching their blog. They were down to the last like 300. And at that point, I had to imagine that my book was pitched in some sort of American Idol-esque contest that I was not able to watch with several other books in a, in a boardroom full of editors and people who were arguing over them. And I just said, okay, let's just leave them alone and they'll figure it out. So finally, I heard in March, they sent me an email and they said, we'd love to publish your book. And I was like, thank God, because if they had said no, I would have lost it. And, <laughs> um, and then they said, but we want to split it in half. And I went, what? Oh, so, so they're going to take the old trick and gonna split it in half. Like, yeah, it's kind of long for what we're looking for. We want to split it in half. They're like, well, do you want me to? round off the end of the first one so that it's like its own book and they're like no 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 just to be continued i was like okay and and in the back of my head i'm like that's gonna piss people off they're gonna read that book and go like what the hell is this <laughs> and so i had they had to come up with two new titles um which oh by the way i i found out um uh, another tip if your editor is like can you come up with new titles for this book do not give them a, a range of possible titles you are considering because they will inevitably pick the one you like least. <laughs> so I had a series of titles and I was like, well, this, 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 or I guess you could just call it the Iron Ring. And she's like, yeah, let's do that. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that's fine. And I'm not, I mean, it's not a bad title, but it's a little generic. I wanted something a little more interesting, but eh, okay. And also, and it turns out that Lloyd Alexander also has a book called The the um, the Iron Ring, which I wasn't aware of. And that was sort of weird too. Uh, but anyway, they split it in half and I was really nervous about that, but I was brand new and I didn't have an agent and I didn't really have anybody else to talk to. And I wasn't sure if I could say, no, it must be one book. Because if they walked, that would suck. So I said, okay. Um, I'll just let them do this. They know what they're doing, right? It'll be fine. And now looking back, I kind of regret that that happened because now, but now every time I talk about this, I have to have this conversation, which I'm like, no, Iron Ring and the Iron and Blood are two halves of one book called The Oldest Trick, which was the book I initially wanted to publish. They split it because they wanted it to be short. And I think possibly because that was the only way they could justify a book that of that length to the higher ups at the, at the publisher. They probably said, this is a new guy is unproven. We're not going to publish like 130,000 word book. I'm like, well, what if we split it in half? Okay, we'll do that. And so that's what they did, which is great. I got a deal. That's fantastic. Um, I do think that has caused an awful lot of confusion to swirl around my early, my first book because they're like, do you have three novels out or two or just one? I'm like, yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have three or two, or one, depending entirely how you look at it. But right now, I just kind of think of it as, it's the oldest trick. They split it in half, so if you're not sure if you like me, you can spend a buck less and buy, or two bucks less, and buy just half the book, and then, you know, if that's okay, then you can buy the other half, and you will have spent an extra dollar, but, you know, that's fine. <laughs> so so that's that's my whole publication story. It's kind of roundabout and weird. And as I've, as I've discovered talking to other writers, everybody's first publication story is roundabout and weird so everybody's got a different way of doing it so there we are i wanted to ask a little bit about games because you're obviously into games and you were a video game tester at one point so i imagine you 
you have to uh, enjoy games, but also tabletop games. You mentioned earlier that helps your world building process and is kind of like a test run of your your the various worlds you've developed. Why do you think creative people we've noticed in the fantasy field connect so strongly to gaming and connection with writing? It's kind of it kind of goes hand in hand sometimes. I think the connection between gaming and writing is ultimately if you're a writer, uh, the reason you want to write. And, and again, this is a broad generalization, but I think generally people who write, particularly fantasy or science fiction, uh, want to go to another place and inhabit another world and be a different person doing really cool and interesting stuff that they themselves couldn't but would like to. You know, like we want to fly through space, you want a lightsaber, you want to do all this stuff. And I think video games let you do that. They are scratching that same itch. Not quite as... There, I don't find video games as satisfying, frankly, as tabletop games because tabletop games I find so much more flexible, and um, and I like to GM, so you, it, it's easier to create my own worlds as opposed to doing that in a video game, which you can do, but it, it's I'm not a programmer, so it's a, it's a lot harder to do it. So yeah, I think gaming uh, gaming is a creative exercise that scratches a lot of the same itches that um, uh, that writing does. I'm never surprised when I hear that uh, writers, particularly in this genre, but I think it applies broadly across genres, um, like to play video games, like to play role-playing games, like to do stuff like that, because I think they like to um, step into somebody else's shoes and, and be somebody else, because that's really a lot of what writing is. A lot of writing is um, you talking to yourself in where, wherever you are. Like you have, I, I will get up and I will pantomime fights with myself which is very difficult to do because i have to keep playing both people so like okay so if i have my arm pinned behind my back like this and i'm standing behind me like this how do i get out of that by doing that and like let's imagine there's a stairway here you know so i i do that kind of thing all the time and i know i'm not alone i know a lot of authors talk to themselves an awful lot people think they're crazy but um, they're actually being characters having conversations with themselves. And so being a video game character or playing in a role-playing game or running a role-playing game really isn't that much different. So speaking of crazy, is is anything batshit crazy ever happened in a game where you're just, everybody was just like, <laughs> wow, I can't believe, I can't believe we just role-played that? Uh, lots of things. I mean, more than I can mention, but I'll, I'll give the most recent one. And this was one of the coolest things I've had happen in a role-playing game in a long time. Uh, and I've been I've been DMing or GMing since I've been like 13, so that's like what 25 years at this point. And I have never had a successful romance storyline in a role playing game. And by successful, I mean one that actually had emotional resonance. Like actually, people were like, "Aw," or "Oh, I'm so glad they got together." Like none of that. Like you know, you get that when you watch a movie. You're like, "Okay, will they? Won't they?" And like then there's that moment where they kiss, and it's like exciting. There's there's emotional payoff. Never happens in a role playing game. Primarily because it's weird when you have to do it with the GM, right? So if I'm playing, if I'm playing, you know, assuming it's a room full of heterosexual guys, and I am playing the girl, there's not that many guys out there who are that confident that they can do that. And they don't really want to either. Like, why, why do we even want to do this? But I do think it's part of storytelling. It's fun. So what ended up happening in this game is we, I had these two characters, uh, these two players. They were sort of like a buddy duo. It was a gnome, and a, half elf, a, a gnome thief and a half-elf warlock. Part of their storyline is they were like partners. They'd always been together and done stuff together. And what happened was 
they went through hell for each other. Literally, like one guy literally got imprisoned in this like alternate universe for a while because he made a deal with the Queen of Air and Darkness to bring his buddy back to life. And then the other guy uh, defied his patron, who is the Queen of Air and Darkness, to break his friend out and therefore was cursed with this horrible wasting disease. And I have this charisma and all kinds of awesome na- nasty stuff to do to a warlock. And he was, but he did it willingly because he cared that much about his buddy. And as we went along, um, he wanted to figure out how to get remove the curse. And, you know, the standard way to remove a fake curse is true love's kiss. That's how it's done, right? So I was like, that's what I told him. Well, it's got to be true love's kiss. And he's like, but I don't have, it's like my character is like a loner. The only person he cares about is this gnome. And I'm like, well, and, <laughs> and, and they looked at each other and it's worth noting one of the, one of them is, is a gay guy. And, and he, and he shrugged and he's like, you know, if you will if you want to do this, we can do this. And they did. And so they like, they actually, they had this, they decided to profit their characters, profess their love to one another. And it freaking worked. It was awesome. It was like, oh. <laughs> Yeah, and it like totally made sense for their characters, and everybody at the table was like, "That was really cool." I've never had that happen before in a game. I don't know that I'll have it happen again, but it was really, it was a neat moment. You know, it was up to the players. I didn't make it happen, but they decided like, "No, that makes sense. Let's do this," and they did it, and it was really neat. And um, yeah, no, Aww. that was that was exact <laughs> action. Like, Aww. <laughs> and uh, and they you know and, and afterwards we're all laughing about it. I was like that was really that was cool. That's like never happened before. Um, so, ta-da! Are you rolling GURPS or like D and D five point or what? I love D and D fifth edition. I think it's great. Uh, it's the best edition since second. Um, I I was a big se- I played second. Um, you know through high school and then uh, when third came out, I I felt like they stripped a lot of what made it fun for me. <laughs> like they, they made the system make a lot more sense so kudos for that but they didn't fix the thing that was broken which was game balance the game balance was always wildly out of whack like if you're a first level wizard you basically deserve to die and <laughs> it, and there was no reason to ever be a bard and if and so it was like all the power arcs were all screwed up they didn't fix that and then they stripped out a lot of the fun and goofy stuff in the game and I was like well I mean I'll, I'll play other games so I, I ran I did like every other game you can name. And then 4th edition came out, and I love miniatures, so I, I play Warhammer 40,000 and all this stuff. So I was like, well, I like miniatures, let's check this out. I'm like, well, this isn't really a role-playing game. This is just a board game, um, which is cool, but it's not the same thing. And uh, when 5th came out, I looked at the book, and I was like, yes, that that's what I want. They fixed everything I wanted fixed, and I love 5th edition. It has its problems, but it's my favorite edition by far. I found a second edition book at a used bookstore here in Japan in English and I about flipped my shit. <laughs> it, was like, okay. it was like 500 yen, which is like five bucks. And when I was a kid, I bought it for 30 bucks or something. So I still like, have it. It's all the bindings been duct taped and it's all, it's all beat up, but man, I still keep that book just for the artwork, man. The artwork in that was great. Yeah. And I think actually the fifth edition rule book, it, the artwork is also awesome uh, on a level that I haven't seen in a while. So, Would you ever like to see the uh, Saga of the Redeemed uh, published as some sort of gaming system or something? Oh, someday? yeah, sure. That'd be fun. I mean, I I already have a gaming system for it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, 
that would be cool. Um, I think I think the the world I created is is broad enough that it could sustain it. And I think you know sometimes worlds like you can read different fantasy novels, and some fantasy novels you're like, oh yeah, I could definitely see a, a role playing game happening here. And other ones you're like, yeah, I don't know how that would work. I mean, it, to take nothing away from the work, it's a great story. Like say, um, for instance, um, and I know there have been many many games set here, but I think Tolkien's Middle Earth really doesn't lend itself to role playing games. Um, I hmm. because it it is so the whole world is so tied up in that one storyline and everywhere you go in that world it's tied into that one storyline and the places they never go and you know almost nothing about have nothing to do it's sort of like okay do you want to be in the war of the ring um yes okay we can have a role playing game do you not want to be in the war of the ring no all right well grow potatoes like that's all you have. <laughs> And then there's other worlds, like one of one of the other ones. Um, uh, do you know Felix Gilman's um, Half Made World? Not, not aware of that one. Though. Well, Felix Gilman uh, is great, by the way. He does. Um, he's a fantasy author. He writes a sort of um, weird West fantasy. Uh, it's really really cool. It's secondary world though. It's not like our world in the old West. It's a secondary world that has like old West like things. And that's a world that is like, I remember reading that book, and I highly recommend it, by the way, um, and thinking like, man, there should be a role-playing game set here. Like, geez, I can even think of the character classes right now. Like, they're all laid out. It's, um, it's very, very cool. Um, and, so, and that because like, there seems to be so much to do in the world that Gilman doesn't even get to. Like, you're in this one storyline, which is very compelling and very important, but there's like, Five million other things going on that you're like, oh yeah, I could definitely see an adventure happening there, or an adventure happening there, or something going on there. And what is the deal with those trains? There's a certain breadth to the world that is like, there are things happening here that is part of the story, but there's also things happening here that are also interesting but are not part of the story. And I don't think every fantasy world does that. And I don't think they have to, I should stress. I don't think a fantasy world has to have, you know, this broad layer of all kinds of different conflicts but you know the ones that do i often think to myself role-playing game well i'm gonna have to throw out my potato rpg i was working on (laughs) (laughs) there is someone out there who wants to play a a, an uh, an agrarian based rpg i guarantee it same people who like love playing puerto rico (laughs) i will trade coffee for beans oh great that sounds that's (laughs) good So your uh, career evolution uh, continues to develop. You now have an agent, so you're even more big time, Austin Habershaw. You got a pretty cool agent, too. How'd you land your agent, uh, Yeah, so uh, oddly enough, much the same way I landed my book deal. Um, so <laughs> I w- always I wanted an agent because I, I wanted to do go the traditional publishing route, and to do the traditional publishing route, an agent is enormously helpful. And nowhere was that made more obvious than my first book deal, in which I did not have an agent. I really didn't know what I ought to be getting from them. And I should stress that I don't think Harper gave me a raw deal. I just don't think maybe I got as good a deal as I should have gotten and would have gotten if I knew better. So while Harper didn't exploit me by any means, I don't think, um, I think I could have done better for myself. Uh, And there's a lot of things I didn't understand about the process. So anyway, I wanted an agent, but of course getting an agent is really difficult. And it's like this whole like catch 22 thing, which is, um, you know, you, you need to need an agent to get a book published, but you can't get a book published until you get an agent. Now, as luck was ha- would have it, I got a book published. So then I'm like, well, now I can get an agent. Sure. 
Um, and But I wanted to wait for the right moment. I wanted to wait until I had something to give them, right? Like I didn't have another book done yet. And uh, so I went to the Writers of the Future conference and I talked with, you know, Tim Powers and Mike Resnick and people about like, you know, what do I, what do I need to, how do you get an agent? What do you do? Tim Powers describes having an agent as, as uh, being in a marriage. So sometimes it's great. Other times it's <laughs> not. <laughs> and it really just depends on you and the agent. And there's no, and you know, how you predict that is difficult. So, so I was like, okay, good note. When I, way back in the beginning, when I was looking at agents and like, you know, imagining myself getting whatever agent I wanted, um, up at the top of my list was uh, the Jabberwocky agency with Joshua Bilmez, who's the, um, the head of it. And I thought like, yeah, I mean, he would be a great agent. And so I had, I had queried him probably three or four times with other projects. And every time I, I got a rejection notice, which was nice, by the way, not all agents actually send you rejection notices. Jabberwocky actually does, which is very polite of them. And so I, uh, I got to the point where um, I was almost ready to send something out. But again, the book, uh, No Good Deed, kept getting delayed, mostly because I had editors that were leaving and going to other imprints and stuff. And so I had to I had like a new editor, I had to get reacclimated. So it kept getting pushed off. And, and, um, and so I didn't want to contact an agent until my current deal, which is up through Note Good Deed, was done. Right. I wanted to say, like, okay, I just finished this deal. I want a new deal. But then in this past January, end of January, I saw that Joshua Bilmez put a post on his blog saying, well, I'm, on, on to I'm, on, I'm as on top of my reading as I am going to get. And he said, I'm going to open myself up for unsolicited queries for like a month. I was like, well, OK, um, I don't I'm not really ready yet. I'm going to have to jump the gun here, but it's only open for a month. So I'm going right. And so I sent him a query. And anybody who's written query letters will know what I mean when I say that query letters are horrible things. They're <laughs> terrible because you stress over them. And what's worse is the Internet has 10 million different unviolatable rules that query letters must, right? You read, read like what goes in a successful query letter. First of all, you read like five different ones. They're all slightly different. They're like, oh my God. So it has to do all of these things. And it's also like, okay, describe your entire book in one paragraph, but be pithy. And you're like, okay. It's like, uh, except we want it to be a pitch, but we want to know how it ends. But we don't want to know everything that happens in the book, but we need to know everything that happens in the book. And we also want to know about you, but don't go too far about you. Only enough about you so that we know who you are, but not so much that we really know who you are. It's like, oh my God. So you sit there, you stress over these things forever. Like they're miserable. And so I got to this one and I, you know, I was, I was basically shooting from the hip. And, I, and basically the summation of my query letter is as follows. Hello, Mr. Billet, Bill Nez. My name is Austin. I got this book thing. You in? <laughs> or, or, or actually, it also said, like, I have a deal with Harper Voyager. It's almost up. I want to extend the series. Here's the idea. You want to do this or what? And, you know, it was a little bit more formal than that. But basically, it was really straightforward. Like, it was just I didn't stress over it. I just wrote it and sent it to him. And I figured, you know, it was a Hail Mary pass. What the hell? He, the worst he can say is no. And um, that's fine. Or possibly, I guess the worst he could say is no, you know, talent hack. But, you know, like, whatever. Um, and... I hear back a couple weeks later from him and he's like, Hey, my assistant just forwarded me your, your pitch. I happen to be in Boston, which is where I live for the weekend. Do you want to meet? And of course that answer is yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Name the place and time. 
And he's like, well, I'm going to catch a, catch a bus Monday afternoon or a Monday late afternoon. How about we meet Monday? I have a breakfast and we'll meet after that. I'm like, okay, okay, sure, sure. Uh, and he's like, do you know where uh, Pandemonium Books is? And if you live in Boston and you're a gaming geek, you know where Pandemonium Books is. It is the sci-fi fantasy bookstore slash gaming place. It is the premier one. It's a fantastic place in Cambridge. And I was like, of course I do. I have done a signing there, which is true. And so I went and I met with him and uh, we hung out for like two hours, which was really cool. And we we're talking about all kinds of stuff. And he was like, he was like, so um, I just had breakfast and it's too early for lunch. Do you want um, coffee or do you want ice cream? Now, I don't actually drink coffee, which I know <laughs> is, is weird, but I, I just don't. And so I was like, well, I don't drink coffee. So let's get ice cream. He's like, OK. So we walk up the street ice cream place and i'm gonna pay for it myself you know it's like a three dollar ice cream cone he's like no 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 no, i got that and so so that's how a grown man purchased me ice cream which which is weird but but it was very nice of him we talked for a while and he gave me a lot of good advice and he said you know uh we'll be in touch and i thought well i don't know maybe something will happen maybe it won't and then Next thing I know, I get in this email conversation with him and his, his assistant. We go through a couple different things. And um, as of about a week or two ago, I, I signed a retainer deal with him. And he's going to re- represent me for the next couple books of the Saga of the Redeemed and, and then possibly stuff after that. And uh, it's really, really exciting. I, he is a great agent, and I am, I am really pumped that, um, that I was able to get him. So. And you got ice. And you got ice cream. And I and I got free ice cream out of it. Free ice cream, not just ice cream. Ice cream I didn't have to pay for. Ah! Free. Oh, always tastes better. And what was it about uh, Joshua that uh, made you think that he would be the right guy, the right fit well, for you? Well, he an has agent? a really good list of uh, clients. Uh, people like Elizabeth Moon and Brandon Sanderson and a um, bunch of other people. And I've read his blog a bit, and I've I've looked at stuff. He is very very professional. But he also has a sense of humor, which I thought was really important. Like, I am totally fine with fully professional people. It's fine, whatever. But, but like, for instance, in the retainer agreement, one of the one of the stipulations is one of the services he will render is he is happy to taste any entries in the Pillsbury Bake Off that you care to make, desserts only. <laughs> like, yeah, see, yeah, that's, that's funny. Uh, that's funny. I'm sure he means it, but nevertheless, it is. It's music. Um, and he also, um, one of the other things I noticed is that he is, he's really in tune with the local publishing scene or rather the local like booksellers for various places around the country. Cause I know that he's attended uh, stuff that like Sand, like reading Sanderson has done. And he, he talks about, he seems to keep touch with the readers um, or rather with the readers and with the booksellers in the areas. And when I was at Pandemonium, for instance, he came in, he knew who all the guys were there and he lives in New York and this is in Boston. So like, why would he know them? Hmm. Well, because that's good business, you know? And I was like, this is a good, this is a good match. I mean, this is a guy who knows what he's doing. And, and um, if he likes me, that's awesome. Uh, so he seems to like me. Uh, and so I'm very excited. Um, so hopefully good things come from that. Cool, cool. So you shopping around uh, book three yeah. and book four, yeah. hopefully. Okay. And you didn't agonize for weeks <laughs> no, over the query letter. And that's the grand irony oh. of it, right? You know, that's the, <laughs> that one worked. You didn't have to buy a $100 class on how to write oh, query letters or is, anything like, like that. The, the funny thing is a lot of agents actually say that. Like, just tell me what the book's about. But then at the same time, there's all these people who are like, well, you can't just do that. <laughs> it's like, well, 
I don't, what am I supposed to do? Um, so <laughs> it gets really, I, I think you get really in your head about that. In your head is a, um, improv term. I used to be an improviser. I used to perform at improv Boston and, um, in your head is when you're on stage in an improv scene, right? And the idea, the idea of improv is that you're largely reacting and, and, and collaborating with the people up on stage. And so all you're thinking really needs to happen outside of you. It needs to happen with somebody. And when you get in your head, that's when you're trying to plan stuff ahead, ahead of time. And you're trying to think in terms of stuff that's just going to get blown away by whatever's happening in the now. And so I think that's a term that also applies to query letters. And I think to novel pitches and everything else, you get up in your head and you have, you have all this elaborate stuff you think you'd want to do when really what you ought to do is step back and just try and be honest and straightforward about what you're trying to do and let your ideas speak for themselves um, rather than rely on artificial frameworks um, that are really easy to fall into because we're also and by we I mean all writers are are constantly in a state of uh, discomfort over their own work Um, so it's easy to become to lose confidence in yourself it's very easy uh, and so we like someone telling us, like, there's a plan. You just got to fill out this form uh, and instead of just winging it. Uh, because anytime you pitch somebody or send something, you're always vulnerable. Um, and eventually you learn to really to get a really good thick skin. But uh, that can take some time um, and, and a fair amount of narcissism, which I also think is the other thing most, most novelists have is, a, is an inflated sense of self-worth on some level. Because <laughs> otherwise, why would you do this? I have all these ideas about imaginary people. You're going to pay me money to read about them. Yes. <laughs> and that's a fairly uh, arrogant point of view to to, to hold. Uh, to, I mean, not to say that they're bad people, but you know, um, there there is a certain you have to have a certain degree of believing in yourself. But at the same time, you also are constantly worried that everyone thinks you're an idiot. So. <laughs> So you are a full-time English That's professor right. at this point? Yeah. What's a typical writing day? Like uh, so I don't get a lot of writing. I, I am one of those people who doesn't believe in the write every day. Thing. I think that's kind of nonsense. Works for some people. I tried it for years. doesn't work for me. During the semesters, so fall and spring, I read and grade approximately 2,500 pages worth of student work. And so I really do not have the mental space to do significant writing. I will write maybe some short fiction, maybe edit some stuff, but... Not a lot happens. But during the summers and during the breaks, I write an enormous amount. Uh, so my typical writing day in the summer is I come in to work. I, I, get, I have an office now at, at the place I work. So I get to go in there and I check my email and then I don't talk to anybody all day, and I, which is awesome. No other people. <laughs> I have no conversations. I sit in a cubicle alone for about six hours and pound out as many words as I can, which I, my minimum is 2,500 words. I've done as much as 10,000 in a day, which is really crazy. I haven't done, I did it once. Dude. It was a good day. <laughs> that, that uh, yeah. and then honestly, like uh, probably about 6,000 of that ended up on the editing room floor, but you know, still, yeah, still. but I do, I, I probably average about 3,000 ish words a day at least. And I, so I do that for the summer. And so I get a lot done. Uh, during the spring, during the fall semester and the spring semester, on Fridays I, I don't have classes usually, and I tell my students to buzz off. So I'll on Friday I'll do something, but that's only one day a week, so it's kind of hard to do a novel because a novel really needs to live in your head, 
and I don't have the mental space during during those years. So my, I, I write in fits and spurts, uh, which I know is totally anathema to so many of my colleagues who are like, you're not a writer unless you write. Hey, and it's like, <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I write as much as you do. I just do it in four months as opposed to 12. Um, so, yeah. Is your goal full-time? Yeah, oh, yeah, or? I would love it. You know, but the market being what it is, the odds of that happening are are difficult. Uh, so one of the things, so Kevin J. Anderson and Rebecca Mesta got up at the Writers of the Future conference and giving us advice on professionalism in writing. And they had a series of bullet points. Bullet point number one, and they said this in unison, was don't quit your day job. <laughs> they said, uh, they said like Kevin J. Anderson, who you know is like, you know, tons of New York Times bestsellers. He does Dune novels, Star Wars novels, he writes all, kind of, all kinds of stuff. He did not quit his day job until he already had three New York Times bestsellers and a year's salary in the bank. And so I think there is some wisdom to that um, because sure. this is a business that has lots of ups and downs. You can, it's hard to predict what's going to happen next. And um, hey, if I hit it big and I, I sell a lot of books and I can quit my day job, I totally will. Uh, but until that happens, um, I'm gonna I'm not counting on it happening. Let's put it that way. I'm I'm not gonna count my chickens before they're hatched. Uh, yeah. So I think teaching is probably one of the best things a writer can do as a as a day job, though, because you do have so much vacation time and uh, you may have downtime for various things. Uh, in my case, I'm in a similar situation. I teach at a university, so there are periods where I'll do writing on the train, and mm. looks looks kind of weird, but uh, <laughs> I, ha I have that. And then, of course, you know, I have some downtime for uh, summer vacation and those kind of things. So it, it works out pretty well for writers. Yeah. I think especially the the higher ed system, like universities. First of all, universities want you. To publish stuff if you work for them and you're you're an adjunct or whatever um i was an adjunct for years which is you know like bottom barrel got paid slave wages kind of stuff but i had a lot of time off and they wanted you to publish if you publish that makes you better for the university you look good like they want you there and um i think yeah higher ed's great i i hear a lot about high school how high school is actually like you teach um not higher ed so high school elementary school whatever can be sufficiently draining and occupy so much of your life and you get actually less time off, that it isn't as good. But uh, it, I think it varies for the person. But yeah, the, the time off, the summers are huge. They're huge. And, and um, if you can afford to not work during the summer, or if you're full-time like me and I get paid through the summer, I only have to teach one class during the summer. It's a huge benefit, yeah. Um, but for me, writing every day doesn't work. That I, can't, I can't do that. I also wanted to ask you if you believe uh, fantasy corrupts the amount of children. <laughs> Being related to teaching. Yes. <laughs> yes. We are building legions of evil minions. No. <laughs> not, that's such a ridiculous thing to say. It is. So one of the things I have to say is in the academic world. So I have one foot in the, in the science fiction fantasy world and one foot in the world of academia. There is a significant portion of academia. And this was made really clear when I was getting my MFA that finds science fiction and fantasy to be somehow inferior and harmful and an, a, a terrible form of literature that's somehow destroying things, which is complete crap because basically fantasy has been with us since we've started telling stories. 
You want to tell me the Epic of Gilgamesh is literature? The Epic of Gilgamesh is about a dude and his friend fighting gods, right? <laughs> like, with super strength, building walls. Like, the, <laughs> when him and Enki do fight the Bull of Heaven, it's a it's a fantasy storyline. Um, fantasy is part of human culture and is a very valuable part of it. And if you can get kids interested in reading by reading Harry Potter and the Hunger Games, you'd be out of your damn mind to discourage them from it. I can't even understand why. Because one of the problems I have as a professor who teaches at a college that is a, primarily a health sciences college, like so I teach at the Mass College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and most of my students are going to become pharmacists or doctors or you know, physician's assistants or dentists or whatever. Most of my students don't read. Like they haven't read, they haven't read hmm. books in years. Um, I don't know how they manage to get through high school by doing that, but they don't read. They, they don't like reading. And I think that's a problem across the board. A lot of young people don't read. And fantasy and science fiction is a way to get kids to read. Why? Because it's fun. YA is a great way to get kids to read because it deals with characters that are like them. And it's really, really short-sighted and foolish to say, well, this reading is good, but that reading is bad. Nonsense. Let them read it all. You know, slap the Necronomicon in front of third graders. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> like, like get them get them reading words um and you know maybe they'll be satanists but they'll they'll read they'll be engaged in our society right like reading is really really important i think fantasy is a great way to do that and it drives me nuts every time i see somebody poo-pooing harry potter because it's like i don't know vaguely pagan or or it's not literary enough and it's like are you kidding me not literary enough i think you came up with a good story just now putting giving necronomicon to children <laughs> see what happens <laughs> all right kids i'm your substitute teacher today uh we're gonna read the necronomicon today we're going to summon the ilzip up jimmy bring the guinea pig over um <laughs> oh boy Austin, it's been fantastic uh, getting to talk with you and learning more about uh, your writing and everything that you've got going on. Book one, The Oldest Trick, is available now for $3.99 on Amazon. No Good Deed drops June 21st. Um, so lots of Haber Shawsom stuff coming out from you. Um, anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? Uh, not that I can think of. Um, over the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on in my blog. I'm, I have a reading uh, near Boston if anybody happens to be there, but uh, go to my blog and find out what I'm up to if you want to find me. Uh, but otherwise, uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a ton of fun, and um, thanks so much. Sure, and folks can follow you on Twitter. That's, yes, Facebook I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Austin Hab. Um, I am not a fan of the Canadians, but I did not realize that the Hab thing was associated with them. And um, <laughs> Which I was like, are you a Canadian fan? Aren't you from Boston? I'm like, I didn't know that was a thing. It's just letters of my last name. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I'm also on Facebook. You can find me there uh, under my name. A-U-S-T-O-N-H-A-B-E-R-S-H-A-W. Um, not I-N because that's been happening my whole life and you won't find me that way. <laughs> that's Austin right. It's just o. weird. There you go. I thought you were saying you just didn't like Canadians, period. Like you said, no. I don't like the Canadians. <laughs> so that's a... <laughs> not the, the hockey team. The okay. Montreal Canadiens. Um, are apparently also known, their fans call themselves the Habs, or I forget what it's short for. Uh, and um, 
And as a resident of Boston, and I'm not a huge hockey fan, so I, I you know, signed up for Twitter. I'm like, Austin, and Habershaw is such a long name. So I was like, Austin Habs. And a bunch of my friends who are Bruins fans are like, what the hell, man? I'm like, <laughs> like, what are you, a Canadian fan? It's like, you the people? They're like, no, that's me. <laughs> oh, oh, is that a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. It's like, well, I don't want to change it now. Oh, you know. Too late. <laughs> Awesome. Well, great to speak with you. Uh, best of luck to you and all your writing endeavors, and thanks, thanks for hanging out, Austin. Much, guys. You can find us online at facebook.com slash thegrimtidingspodcast or on Twitter at GrimDarkFiction. Download the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and be sure to drop by our Facebook group, Grim Dark Fiction Readers and Writers, for daily updates on all things Grimdark. On behalf of co-host Philip Overby and myself, Rob Matheny, thanks for listening to this episode of the Grim Tidings Podcast. We'll see you next time.